Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. I am your host, Andrew Degler, and today we are going to discuss a new UK-based unicorn, ultra-capacitor tongue twisters, Turkish social media policies, and much more. Later on, I would also like to play you an interview with Ot Vakter, who was at the time of the recording the managing director of the e-residency program in Estonia. Who actually needs e-residency? What can an e-resident do? And where are the promised millions of e-residents? All that and more you will hear in that conversation. But before we get to that, let us talk news. This week's agenda was and still is, of course, somewhat overwhelmed by certain elections on the other side of the Atlantic, and yet there is still enough happening for us to talk about. As usual, let us start with funding announcements. The UK's latest unicorn startup is the meal kit company called Gusto, which has raised £25 million, bringing the total funding it has attracted to £155 million. In a comment for Sifted, Gusto founder and CEO Timo Bolt said, I quote, The valuation is well into unicorn land, which is vanity and not sanity, and does not in any way make me happy. The quote ends. Although I do agree with the sentiment in general, but I mean, it's a nice thing to say when your company is worth over a billion quid, isn't it? Anyway, Gusto saw a huge uptick in demand for its meal kits that started at the beginning of the first wave of lockdowns in April, and back then the company also had to raise another funny round of £33 million to cope with the demand. Uh, the money it's raised now, it's raised this time, uh, this money will be spent on two new fulfillment centers and process automation. Now, here's another optimistic quote from uh, Bolt, the CEO and founder of Gusta. Gusta has moved from a nice-to-have to a must-have. The shift to online will last for the next couple of years, so let us build more capacity as fast as we possibly can. What do you think of meal kits that you can order and then cook yourself? I have admittedly never tried one. Should I go for it? Podcast at tech.eu. Let me know what you think and share your favorite uh, recipes. I promise I will uh, try them if you do. Now, back to funding rounds. Another round went this week to Estonia. Skeleton Technologies raised 41.3 million euros in debt and equity. The company, founded in 2009, develops energy storage programs products that are based on ultra-capacitors. And I really wanted to figure out what an ultra-capacitor actually is. So I did what any normal person does. I went to Wikipedia. But the definition of an ultra-capacitor is a tongue twister there. So I have to show you. Check it out. A supercapacitor, also called an ultracapacitor, is a high-capacity capacitor with a capacitance value much higher than other capacitors. <laughs> you can't make this up. And I promise I did this on the first uh, try. I did not have to re-record this one. So in plain English, though, an ultracapacitor is a kind of a battery on steroids, okay? It can handle much higher charging voltage and get charged much faster and also offers much higher voltage output. The founder of Skeleton, Tavi Madiberg, puts it like this. We are in the megawatt per second business and not the kilowatt per hour business, as he said in an interview with Sifter. The downsides of ultracapacitors seem to be that they are very expensive and they can only hold a charge for a few days or even a few hours. 
So what Skeleton is working on is what it calls the super battery, which effectively combines ultracapacitor tech with elements used in normal lithium-ion batteries. Actually, the idea is that the super battery can be used together with a lithium-ion battery in an electric car. In total, Skeleton has already raised 93 million euros for its technology, but I could not find any details as to when exactly it is planning to get the super battery up and running. Now let us move from funding deals to some industry numbers. Invest Europe, an association that represents Europe's private equity, venture capital and infrastructure sectors, has published a new report looking at the first six months of the year 2020. So I'm now going to lose quote the piece of my colleague Annie Musgrove. The report shows the disruption caused by COVID didn't put a dent in private equity fundraising. Funds raised about 49 billion euros in equity, an amount that's in line with the first half of 2019, putting the industry on track to raise a full year total on par with average fundraising levels over the last three years. Meanwhile, funds invested 36 billion euros, a 17% drop from H1 2019, which Invest Europe attributes to tougher trading conditions and dim outlooks. The money backed around 3,400 companies, with about 60% going to follow on investments, and this suggests that firms were supporting their portfolio businesses through the liquidity crisis caused by economic lockdown measures across Europe. About half of the capital went to ICT, that is information and communication tech, that is basically us, and then biotech and healthcare. The quote ends. And the last piece of news I wanted to discuss today comes from Turkey. On Wednesday, the country issued fines of 1.2 million US dollars for each Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Periscope, YouTube, and TikTok. The AP explains the reason I'm going to quote here. Social media firms with more than 1 million daily users in Turkey had been due to notify the government that they would establish a representative in the country by Monday. The fines are the first step of an escalating scale of penalties that can end in a block on 90% of the site's internet traffic bandwidth, the quote ends. There is also a very interesting context to this regulation uh, from the same piece uh, by the AP, so I'm going to quote it again. The legislation was passed in July, less than a month after President Recep Tayyip Erdogan called for social media sites to be quote-unquote cleaned up after his daughter and son-in-law were insulted on Twitter following the birth of their fourth child. It requires platforms to appoint a representative accountable to Turkish courts, abide by orders to remove quote-unquote offensive content within 48 hours, and store user data inside Turkey. The quote ends. So the European Union is not the only one striving for digital sovereignty, it seems, and also it looks like the whole concept of it can be stretched quite a bit. Do you have something to say about the stories that we discuss on the show? Do drop us a line on podcast at tech.eu or ping us on Twitter at tech underscore EU. We are very happy to hear from you. Now it is time for today's interview. Let us listen to Robin Wouters talking to Ot Watter about the e-residency program in Estonia. So hey, this is Robin Wouters from tech.eu and I'm joined here remotely, of course, as always, uh, this time virtually from Tallinn, Estonia by Odd Watter, who is the managing director of the e-residency program, which I'm sure a lot of people uh, listening to this podcast have already heard of, uh, but maybe Odd, a little bit of a background about yourself and what e-residency actually is. Happy to be here. Hi, Robin, and hi to all the listeners out there. 
E-residency is a, a government program. It started about six years ago. And the idea of e-residency was to give a digital identity to entrepreneurs that can have a global impact on the world. As we have had a digital identity program for the Estonian citizens already 15 to 20 years, we thought that we would make it available for foreigners also. And the main benefit is that they can have a remote business from anywhere in the world and can participate through this ecosystem um, via Estonia. A bit about myself, I have been involved with this program since the very early days, so almost six years. Initially joined the program for two months and now have been managing this for more than two years. So it's been quite a variety. I can imagine. And we're recording this on Tuesday, 29 September, uh, which means this is actually your last week because very recently you announced that you were leaving the e-residency uh, department, I guess. Uh, so what's next for you? To be honest, uh, I don't have a concrete plan as of yet. So um, I have a few ideas myself, but uh, keeping keeping them at the moment to spend some time and, and to really think hard because e-residency is a program that is hard to replicate. And, uh, and uh, I want the next step or the journey of my life to be as meaningful as e-residency. So let's see. Yeah, well, actually, that was going to be one of my questions. Like the e-residency program is hard to replicate for you personally, but it's also quite difficult for other countries to replicate, although some have tried or some are trying at the moment. So have you seen any other examples that are close to what the e-residency program in Estonia is now in other countries? We have had a fair share of countries um, coming up with um, with a statement that we are going to make e-residency. Uh, as of today, I can say that seriously, Dubai has made it. So Dubai has created a program called the Virtual Commercial License. And that is very similar to e-residency. They consulted us. We have met them and, and advised them a little bit. So we have played our role in that. There have been um, uh, cases also in Ukraine, Lithuania and Portugal, but they are at the moment in the process of creating them and, and they are wanting to come out with it in 2021. Let's see. It's not that easy. Why is it not easy? Well, first of all, it's kind of a startup inside uh, a government, which is so controversial in its uh, essence that, you know, governments are meant to be slow and and uh, startups are meant to fail fast and, and act super ambitiously. So it's, it's, it's controversial. It, it is an innovative program and it's not meant for governments to have this kind of innovation usually. But in the case of Estonia, it's definitely easier for smaller countries. So we are only 1.3 million people and things kind of move a bit faster than, than the other countries. Great. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, I was at the Latitude 59 conference in Tallinn uh, and there was a booth for e-residency. I think it was relatively new then. Um, and I signed up. Like I, I think I paid like, paid like 50 euros, got my card, uh, needed to go to the embassy here in Brussels. But I think I was among the first 1,000 people, I think, in, like in, 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 uh, in the world to have like an e-residency. But also I have to admit, I didn't really do anything with it. So, of course, the situation has changed since then. But what's basically the pitch? Like, why do people need this or why would they want it? So there are different layers for use of this card. The first layer is uh, if you already have some kind of existing business relationship to Estonia or an Estonian company or partners. So you can use this as a digital document to sign documents digitally. So you don't have to meet a person or, or use a pen and paper to sign the document, which is not at all safe. 
The second layer is uh, more international. So when you're a freelancer, when you're a digital nomad, you're traveling around and you have customers uh, or partners in different kind of uh, jurisdictions and you want access to them via EU jurisdiction. So you can have a remote company through Estonia using that digital identity. And, uh, and then there are kind of third and fourth layers already uh, which are not so dominant, but uh, that you can uh, use this document uh, to participate in some EU grant funding or you're a diplomat and, and uh, you sign some kind of documents or, or your family members are, are in different kind of jurisdictions and, and use this digital identity to partake in Estonian digital services, for example. So there, there are many layers, but the main point is still today company formation and company formation in European Union. Right. And what's next for you, Residency? Because I know you're stepping down as managing director, but in your farewell post, you also said, you know, our work is not finished. So what is, what is next? What needs to be done for this to sort of uh, go to the next level? Uh, work will never be finished with, uh, with this kind of program. Um, I really hope that we can lose the physical barrier. Uh, at the moment, uh, you know, the, the application process is completely virtual. Uh, you can do everything online and, and uh, upload your passport, pay the state fee, but you have to go to the Estonian embassy because we have to verify that you, Robin, are actually who you claim to be, right? Um, because it's the highest security form of a, a national document and according to EU law as well. And uh, we would like to make this virtual because the technology is there. Yeah, we just It's a matter of legislation and agreeing with the other EU member states of the EIDAS uh, legislation. So I hope to, to fast track that or I hope the team will fast track that uh, and, and will be able to scale the issuing of e-residency to, to new heights. Yeah. Well, I remember having to go to the Estonian embassy indeed here in Brussels. Uh, but also remember back then you couldn't even open a bank account yet without sort of having physically be there. But that, that was solved like a few years. So I know it's evolving. Of course it is. Um, but I also wanted to ask, because you mentioned a couple of stats. I'm going to go back to your farewell post so I get this right. Uh, you were saying there are now over 72,000 e-residents of Estonia who since 2014 have created nearly 14,000 companies with a total turnover of more than 1.6 billion euros. So those are impressive numbers, but, uh, and this is a bit of a cheeky question, I think, if I remember correctly, when the e-residency program was launched, or at least in its first year when I signed up, the ambition was to have like a million e-residents, or at least I was, I don't know if that was ever publicly announced, but I remember that that number was stuck in my head for some reason. So in that sense, has it been as successful as, as it was predicted or forecasted? So um, to tell you a little secret, uh, the first concept paper of e-residency, then the number there was uh, 10,000 e-Estonians. And that uh, didn't get any attention in Estonia or in global sense. And then we changed 10,000 to 10 million. Uh, so it's it until you make it. So it was, <laughs> let's say, it, it was to gather attention uh, and to spur some conversation to actually get people to think, what if there was one country in the world that had 1.3 million people, but actually 10 million, you know, e-people. And, and it definitely served its purpose that, you know, then the media was writing about it, then people were talking about it, there were, you know, critics, there were people who were in completely in favor and, 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 and it, it, uh, had this kind of discussion moment, but it was never, you know, a direct goal of our team to get 10 million. 
but it was a more like a vision of uh, of e-Estonia. And in the early days, we were focused more on e-residents. So, you know, people like you who might want to be, you know, tied to Estonia, who, who want to be at least informed about what Estonia is doing and, and uh, are kind of these early adopters of e-Estonia innovation. And then we started to focus more on the people who actually create companies. And then we started to focus on the fact that these companies would be active uh, and we would help them to be more profitable, to have more kind of ecosystem players that, that help them. And then, of course, economic impact to Estonia, which is also important in the eyes of our shareholders who are the Estonian taxpayers. So it's kind of a logical um, evolution of the program. But 10 million is, is just something to gather the, the attention. And now we're focused more on the practicalities. Wow, it was 10 million. Wow, I, I had stuck in my head that it was a million, but it was even more. So this um, is the question that every Estonian journalist asks as the first question. So where is the 10 million? <laughs> oh yeah, well I'm sorry to have to repeat that question, but it, you you set yourself a benchmark, so you're no, sort no, of. No, uh, I think it it uh, did well to gather the the discussion and uh, people remember it. So that's that was the point. Yeah, and so how and where do you recruit uh, potential e-residents? Like, how do you find them, and where do you go looking for them? Is it like in in, in Europe mostly? Is it emerging countries? Is it in the US? Uh, where do you look for them? So today, I would say that um, the news travels quite organically. So there is a very vibrant community of e-residents already. So about 70,000 e-residents today, but we have you know more than 100,000 in our email subscription list who are interested and maybe have not applied yet, but who are kind of vocal community members. And through that, I think it spreads very well. Of course, it is still an interesting topic for international media. So we do a lot of PR. We talk to a lot of different kind of players, and uh, and we do some uh, e-marketing. Of course, now less physical events and and webinars mostly. But uh, we'd say that the most of the the residents today come from inside EU, which is quite surprising in the sense that it's quite near. And we thought that the, the main benefit would be third world countries and outside of the EU. But it's still complicated in, in traditional you know, jurisdictions like Germany or, or France to create a company. And it takes a lot of time and money and you have to do the processes physically, which means that if you're a freelancer and you like to spend your winters in Indonesia, then you don't want to go to the cold Berlin tax office and stay, stand in queue for three hours. So that's yeah. where we come in. Yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, well, I'm in Belgium, so there's a reason that TechEU as a company was actually created in the UK and not locally. Um, but of course, I mentioned the UK, but there's a good reason why I do, because you don't always have to do your own marketing and PR. Sometimes countries do it for for you, uh, which, uh, of course, the Brexit vote was, uh, I'm guessing, a huge factor in in getting more interested from the UK. But uh, does that kind of thing, like the geopolitical shifts, uh, help you a lot in getting new members? I think uh, with the Brexit case, um, it was very or it was easier for us to explain the value of e-residency because e-residency is quite a complex product. I mean, it's not that we're selling shoes to people, right? Uh, we are selling, you know, the Estonian uh, business environment through a digital means, which is quite not that easy to understand at first. And uh, with the case of Brexit, I think it made us um, it made it, it made it easier for us to explain the values of e-residency, and everybody understood why it's necessary. I'll bring you one example. So there are a few academics who were participating in Horizon 2020 funding schemes uh, from UK. And for example, when the Brexit vote came, then they couldn't they were not eligible for the funds anymore, which means that their work was stopped. <laughs> so um, they found a way to 
create an Estonian company. And through the Estonian company, which is in the EU, they applied for the funding and grants and, and kept working. And so this is like a non-profit example um, for, for e-residency. But most of them are for-profit and, and freelancers who have customers in EU and they could just continue their normal business operation. So we can say that Brexit definitely had, uh, had an effect on us. Yeah. Undoubtedly. Next question is a bit of a devil's advocate question. Are there any downsides to being an e-resident or are there any reasons why people shouldn't do it? Well, you might fall in love in Estonia too much and move here and we have <laughs> cold winters. <laughs> that's, uh, that's true. I've been there in the winter, so I can confirm to your listeners. <laughs> but uh, in all honesty, I mean, you don't have any obligations with e-residency. Uh, so you are still, you know, a citizen of where you are a citizen. So that doesn't change. And, and we don't ask, we don't, you know, you don't have to do anything. So it's completely voluntary. You can create a company if you want to. But in the case of, you know, you, Robin, for example, if you don't create a company, we, we have no hard feelings. We just like it that you are, you know, connected to Estonia. We like to send you some emails from time to time to say how we are doing, what Estonia has done. And then maybe you will tell a friend or two to come to Estonia and to check it out. So for us, you are kind of an e-ambassador. Yeah, I think that's also the word that they used when I signed up, like with people to sort of become an ambassador, especially at first, because you couldn't do as much as you can do now, of course. Um, but then there's, like I've been reading and hearing about this, and I'm sorry if this is not really related to your work with e-residency, but there was this uh, digital nomad visa uh, that was recently introduced or announced. I don't really know for sure, but so maybe can you fill us uh, in on that? So this is very related to what we are doing here in e-residency because the the idea for the digital nomad visa actually came from e-residents or, or talking to e-residents. And we understood that the way the world is set up today regarding visas and travel is uh, is that when you or me, we go to Indonesia and we open up our laptop, we are there on a holiday visa. So technically or legally looking at it, this is illegal. So we are working, right? And we should be there with a working visa, which which a lot of freelancers do today and, uh, and uh, in EU the same. So we understood that there was a need that some kind of government or country solves, uh, solves this problem of offering an actual legal way for freelancers to work and also uh, contribute to the tax obligations uh, there. And that's how the idea of a digital nomad visa was born. It was born actually two years ago. And so it has been a very long process. Uh, today, when it coincides with uh, with you know the heaviest moments of the COVID crisis uh, and many other countries in the world followed the same idea, uh, but we had been working on this for for a long time actually, and the idea is simple that you can come to EU Schengen zone uh, for up to twelve months. You have to prove that you are either a freelancer, so working with different customers internationally, or you're working for a corporation remotely, and. Um, you have to prove a certain income threshold that you can actually get by in, in Schengen countries. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, you can spend up to 12 months here. And we hope that, you know, at least three or four months you spend in Estonia. And then when winter comes, you leave and maybe come back in summer and maybe tell a friend to, to also come and work here. Great, great. Well, um, in your uh, farewell post, uh, as you are leaving uh, e-residency program, you also mentioned that Part of the appeal for you was sort of the connections that you've made, the people that you've talked to who are e-residents or have stories to share. So what are some of these memorable stories, some examples of e-residency use that you didn't sort of, you know, that surprised you? I think the, the community aspect of e-residency is, is something that is often maybe overlooked or not 
understood how deep it is actually that um, we have for example the e-residents have created uh, e-residents international chamber association so it's kind of an independent representation body of e-residents that gather you know every month and and they they really want to be involved with uh, what estonia is doing and and have their voice heard uh, also so they are very vocal and and when we understood when we did an anthropological study into the the souls of e-residents and we understood that quite often these freelancers might be lonely because they're traveling a lot they have you know company um, that they're the the sole proprietor of and uh, and they don't have this you know one home that they would actually can call a home and that's why the community stands together very strongly and maybe one of the the most interesting e-resident use cases that i've heard and still is today is someone who played batman at uh, children's birthdays so it was an international batman who went to children's birthdays and played batman and he made a, quite a lot of revenue with that so he's like a professional professional actor in in that sense and he used this uh, e-resident company in estonia to uh, to manage this uh, and and one other case was adult novels for example uh, so there's no boundaries of what you can do without um, without the shackles of you know physical locations Great. Well, you did manage to get me on board and Batman, so that's already quite a good track record. What are some of the mistakes you made uh, along the way? Like, what, what is like, like, let's say the biggest mistake you've made over the last five years? Now, that's a tough question. I think we overestimated in the beginning the need to involve Estonian partners. So uh, the e-residency program is not, you know. I might be the face at the moment, right? Uh, but actually, there's a huge team of 20 people working every day behind it. And then behind that 20 people is actually a lot of different Estonian institutions, like the Estonian police, who actually processes the application and does the background check. Then is the foreign ministry and the embassy who actually issues the document. And then there is like uh, IT developers in, in different kind of institutions and, and, and all of that. And in the early stages, we really focused heavily outside Estonia, so to, to do the sales part, so to say, to, to get the e-residents on board. But we, what we failed to do was to explain uh, the benefits to Estonian stakeholders, the ministries, and the, so to say, shareholders or the taxpayers, because they didn't understand at all. Why is this necessary? Why are we spending money on this? Why? They are foreigners. Why do they? They're not even coming here. So everybody was like, why are we doing it? Our is focus it better, was heavily. It it's much better now. So we, we, in the past two years, we've heavily focused on explaining this to Estonians as well. So what do you get? And a very nice example to illustrate this is that you know e-residents need an ecosystem to actually do business. So they need bookkeeping. You know they they need, they need an address or maybe legal advice. And there is a whole industry, new industry of Estonian companies that are servicing e-residents. So this is new kind of economic branch that is coming into Estonian economy that didn't exist before. And imagine an Estonian company that can have accountants, you know, in really rural places of Estonia, living inside a forest or a lonely island somewhere, and they can provide this bookkeeping service because it's completely virtual. And they didn't have these customers before. So this is new money flowing into the Estonian economy, which is very positive um, in general. And, and I think now we've, we've repaired that mistake. But in the early days, uh, there was a lot of conflict and, and misinformation as to why do they need the residency, who they are, and how is it good for me? Yeah. And uh, this community of e-residents, have you ever tried to bring them together physically, like a conference or a summit? or? Oh, yeah. So, And, and this has been actually quite independent from us. So that's the, the whole point of Erika, right? the uh, Chamber Association, that they 
they actually wanted to have an e-residency festival this year during latitude. But unfortunately, we had the, the crisis that came and it was postponed for, for um, some time. But uh, the Erika was formed one and a half years ago in Estonia during latitude. So there were, you know, 19 people coming together and, and signing this uh, memorandum of establishing a non-profit in Estonia. So they're a very uh, trustful community that stands together and they want to meet from time to time. And I think around latitude is the time that the residents are, are very welcome here. So we wanted to have nature trips and pork trips to them to introduce, you know, the other side of Estonia as well, which is the forest and, and the beautiful nature. So we definitely want to do more in that field. Great. Well, I'm hoping and praying that Latitude 59 happens next year and the e-residency festival, so I can do both. Um, I'll thank you so much for your time and giving us some insights into the work that we've done with the e-residency and I wish you all the best uh, in the future. Thank you very much. And this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope that you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word if you did. Tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. I will talk to you again next week. Enjoy your weekend and take care. Bye-bye.